everyone, and welcome to Fine Vines and Wine. I'm your host, Karis Pixie, and each week I'll be giving you all an insight into the behind the scenes of our favorite beverage, wine. I'd love for you to use this podcast platform as a winery guide for your next weekend away, exploring everything Australia has to offer. You never know, you might discover a new spot or two to visit. I acknowledge the Cadigal and the Bunurong people of the Cullen Nation, traditional custodians of the land that we recorded today's podcast episode on. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the nation. On this week's episode of Fine Vines and Wine, we're getting to know Peter Dillon, chief winemaker at one of my absolute favourites, hand-picked wines. Thank you so much for joining me today. How's the beginning of your week going? Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, the week is off to a pretty good start, actually, in that we've just started picking our first grapes of the 2021 season. So as of today, we are picking Pinot Noir in the Yarra Valley. Oh, amazing. Yes, I think I actually saw that on your Instagram. You did a little post about that. Mm, yep. No, it's always an exciting day when the... Uh, it's always nice to get started. How long does that go for as well? It'll depend a little bit on the season and weather uh, and all those things, but we're probably talking around about six to eight weeks by the time we've finished all the different varieties across the different regions. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. It takes such a long time. Yeah, if it was a bit simpler and we were just um, picking grapes in one place. Um, I also wanted to add that the lovely team at Handpicked have also sent me some of your wines to try. Thank you. I'm very appreciative of that. Um, and to let everyone know that I'll be doing some live tasting on my stories soon. Plus, I also have a bottle of the 2019 Chardonnay to give away. So stay tuned for that mm-hmm. too. So firstly, I had a little look at the awards page on the website and your wines have won so many, which is amazing. Um, What goes into creating an award-winning wine? Uh, That's a very good question. I think it's not something we necessarily go into with the intent of purely making a wine that will win awards, but I think we've equally been fortunate in that we have had a lot of success. And I think the reason for that is because we're trying to really, one, find interesting vineyard sites um, which inherently I think make wines that have really interesting flavours and aromas and complexity. Um, We also have a real focus on trying to, across the various ranges, we're either capturing a premium wine region and probably the varieties that it's famous for or um, we also do quite a number of single vineyard sites. And I think with that, you know, when, often when a judge is looking at wines and assessing them, things like a wine show, they're looking for wines that have character, they've got complexity and depth of flavour and persistence. And I think, um, fortunately for us, those really interesting sites that we are working in um, go hand in hand with those sort of characteristics. How long have you been working in wine and what's your me- most memorable moment that you've experienced? Um, I've been in the industry for about 22 years now. Oh, perfect. And I suppose in that time there's been different excitements and um, experiences. But I think in more recent times, you know, I'd, I'd moved from Western Australia to take on this role with hand-picked steer, uh, the winemaking team and, and wine styles and those sorts of things. And I'd come from a really remote part of Australia, but also, you know, when you look at West Australia, it's probably some of the most remote regions in the world. Mm. Moved into this role where I was um, looking after all these from, from areas living in Mornington Peninsula 
And I did a day trip to Tasmania to check on our vineyards and to make our wine. And I was home again by the end of the day. And for me, that was just such a mind-blowing experience because it was such a paradigm shift in terms of my previous experiences and now being being able to actually juggle all these different balls all at once from, from Mornington Peninsula and still be home for a late dinner with my wife. <laughs> it was, was pretty surreal. Yeah, definitely. I'm actually going to skip forward a couple of questions because you see yourself as a traveling winemaker, which means that you can sort of fly around and visit all of the wineries, which is amazing as well. Um, for people that don't know what that is, what does it entail? The concept of a flying winemaker can differ a little bit depending on the, the individuals involved. For me, what it really is, the concept is uh, for hand-picked, we have um, vineyards, a combination of our own vineyards and a combination of uh, growers' vineyards that provide us with their fruit to make into wine. Um, but that, probably unusually, is not just in one region. It's spread across all over Australia. We even do some international projects in New Zealand and Oregon and Bordeaux uh, and elsewhere. And by default, we should try to keep an eye on how all those things are progressing um, means that I'm jumping on the plane, flying across and, and getting involved um, in those projects wherever they may be. So, you know, in some cases that's a trip that's early in the growing season where the fruit is on the vine and then we actually will pick the vine. So say from a Tasmanian perspective, um, once we pick the fruit, we actually put it onto the terry across Mornington Peninsula and it comes into our winery in Mornington. Um, but in other cases like, say, um, making Cabernet in Margaret River or Pinot in Oregon. It's obviously too far away to do that, so it involves flying in and, and making it at the winery in those locations. Wow, that's amazing. It would be so cool to go and see so many different places and sort of be across lots of different wineries with lots of, I guess, different like climates. And as this past year and so 2021 affected that at all with all of the traveling, because I guess you probably can't be flying around as much. So how do you sort of control all of that sort of stuff? That's a very good question. In 2020, provided quite a few new <laughs> that we hadn't experienced previously. I think we handled various elements of it, you know, in different ways. And I think the fundamental issue was that I couldn't necessarily always be on site in a vineyard to taste the grapes and then taste the wines. And that's where I suppose the industry is a relatively small one. And unfortunately for me, uh, lots of good friends are spread across these regions. So in 2020, I really probably leaned on a few particular individuals who were close friends uh, and they'd go around and taste the, the fruit in the vineyard or taste the wine in the winery and then we'd have talk about it on the phone. Then I'd be making decisions based on, on what they said. wouldn't necessarily recommend that on a to do that that way every year it's not the easiest thing to do and I was probably fortunate too and you know these are friends that I've had for, for decades who we've shared plenty of wines together and we probably understand each other's palates and can talk about what it tastes like um, through a zoom call or whatever else and still come away with some idea of what it tastes like so it's in some ways a bit surreal um, but it, we managed to make it all work uh, in other cases it would be something like coming up a, a pruning plan in a vineyard where you'd be staring at the vines in Tasmania or wherever else it may be to, to make a decision on how we're going to manage the vineyard and, and prune it for the coming season so a year of challenges but uh, I think we, we certainly got there in the end and 
come up with some beautiful wines all the same. Perfect. I mean, going back to getting your friends to taste the wine, I feel like that would be quite hard because number one, you'd have to trust their opinion and trust what they're tasting. And also as well, like people's palates, palates are so different. You would have to, yeah. I was just really lucky in that I do have these friends who, um, as I say, we've tasted wines together for, you know, in some cases from Mm. university days over 20 years ago. And I think that means once you've in a winemaking sense, enjoyed wines together and talked and argued about them over those years. It means you do have that trust in them. Um, and without that trust, it would be impossible. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely it would be. Um, how long have you actually been working at Handpicked Wines for? Uh, I have been here for now seven years. Um, so. Oh, wow. So a while. Yeah. And you're enjoying it still? It's an incredibly diverse and stimulating winemaking role because we do have these amazing classes of fruit spread far and wide. But probably the biggest driver for me and what really drew me um, to come on board seven years ago was that real passion that I share with um, handpicked for particularly Pinot Noir and also Chardonnay. And in that aspect, we a sport for choice. We're making Pinots and Chardonnays in some of the world's best grape-growing regions for those wines. So what would be a typical working day for you? Um, let's say a typical working day before COVID and a typical <laughs> working day during COVID because I feel like they would be quite different. They definitely were. Um, in the pre-COVID times, mm-hmm. um, vintage is a bit of a juggle and it's really, you know, it's a bit like a, it's not quite as dramatic or probably life and death, but you almost feel like the triage nurse at the emergency uh, <laughs> ward at the hospital where you're just trying to prioritise and where you need to be when. In Mornington, when we're picking and making the wine, getting up to the car to check how our wines are going in the winery there. And then possibly the next day, I'll jump on the plane and do a day trip down to Tasmania to check the vineyards, maybe book in some fruit. Um, so quite a lot of travel and, and really a lot of those decisions, you know, the, the way we make wine is according to different winemakers and it's really coming back to some form of mix of art and science. And I think some people would use a lot of analytical numbers, but I think from this part of that art side is really to, to go on flavour and taste and see how the vines are responding to a different season. So it's a very hands-on um, and sensory related sort of a roller coaster ride. In terms of the, the COVID window, last year we were probably also a little bit lucky in that things like lockdowns only really started once the lion's share of vintage um, in terms of picking decisions had finished. We just had the, the latter parcels of fruit come in, which was particularly Tasmania and West Australia. Uh, to be able to, um, and by then I had a lot of our core parcels of wine a winery at Mornington and some other parcels up in Yarra. So I was able to just commute between those wineries and, and check on them myself. And then the challenge then was just to get these friends who I'd be on the phone or, or Zoom call to tell me how things were going in the vineyard in Tassie and how the vineyards in, in Margaret River were going. Wow, that's crazy. And whereabouts are you based? I'm based at our winery in Mornington Peninsula. It's um, on the lower um, parts of Mornington Peninsula um, and a beautiful little um, vineyard and, and winery there. My geography skills aren't that great, but I'm um, guessing yeah, Mornington Peninsula is near Melbourne. Near Melbourne, so we're about, okay, we're about an hour southeast of Melbourne. Um, if you drew a line between Melbourne and Phillip Island, where the penguins are, that's roughly uh, where we are. And Mornington is quite an interesting region because it's surrounded by three bodies of water, so it's got 
Port Phillip Bay on the Melbourne side. On the Phillip Island side, it's got Western Port and then there's Australia to the south. So it makes it a really interesting and unique little wine region. I would love to visit it, hopefully when all the border <laughs> restrictions and everything, because I feel like it's so hard to book in a trip at the moment. Yeah, definitely. You book it in and then like literally a week later, it all changes. <laughs> but I'm actually going to Orange at the end of the month. So oh, yeah. trying to get around all the different wine regions that I haven't visited. So Beautiful. that one's on my list too. No, there's no shortage of uh, beautiful wine regions to, to check out and some great wines. So talking about, this is probably the last part, we'll talk about COVID and then we'll just forget it's happening. <laughs> what do you think the industry will see more or less of in 2021? And are there any plans in the works for handpicked as well? Um, in terms of, in a COVID sense, I think 2021 has really sharpened people's minds in terms of direct-to-consumer sales because obviously... The downturn in terms of visitors to regions and store doors and restaurants has really probably made people rethink how they do their business. People have really, as we all like to say, pivoted and come up with some different ways to really try to connect and find those customers in the online space. So Handpicked um, has certainly done that, driven through our cellar door in Sydney last year and, and trying to get delivery services out a very speedy sort of turnaround and sharing some of the experience of Salvador as best they could. So doing things like pairing with cheeses and charcuteries and all those sorts of things. So that model we've also rolled out to be outside of Sydney and, and trying to really start to drive into what will become more of a national model in the longer term. Um, so I think that's probably the key thing in terms of COVID. Um, outside of that, there's plenty of other things which you know, probably come back to things like General consumer trends with um, interest in lower alcohol products and, uh, mm. and, and how we address things like climate change and all those other sorts of things, but obviously those are separate to COVID. Yeah, because I feel like low alcohol wine and non-alcoholic wine is really having a moment at the moment. Um, yeah, everyone seems to be jumping on board and I have tried a couple and I've really surprisingly enjoyed them mm. um do you have any um plans to bring in we don't necessarily have a plan to bring the non-alcoholic but i think as a general rule we are um, really trying to push to those lower alcohol mm. styles and i think you know over time that will continue to evolve so for us that means not having say a shiraz that's 14 15 16 percent it's in the 12s and 13 but i think really that will continue to evolve so most interesting work being done in New Zealand at the moment, producing wines that are more like nine percent alcohol and still tasting more like they are in that sort of typical spectrum. Yeah, no, I agree because I feel like a lot of Australians, especially in Sydney, are all into their health and fitness, and a lot of them people are really healthy during the week, and then they go all out on the weekend. So I feel like definitely low alcohol is definitely going to be a popular choice yeah. for a lot of people. So the wines that you guys sent me were from the Mornington and Tasmania ranges. So I've heard that they're in the process of getting their organic certification. Congratulations. Um, what's the process for this and what steps as a winemaker do you have to take? I know it can take three years, so it is a long time. Yeah, I think it's for three years is a long time, but I suppose in terms of us um, process, it's an investment um, for the future. So that was, that was a weight we were more than happy to take. What it actually means by way of the, the certification, it's an interesting one because in many ways we haven't had to change a lot of what we were doing previously to now become certified. But, but what it particularly means is we now are following 
um, the organic guidelines and things like auditing process that NASA is doing with us. Um, so that really makes it, I suppose, an official process which is checked and three years allow things like soil testing to be done to, to actually you know, guarantee that there's no residues in the soil and all those sorts of things. Mm, how far into the three years are you? So we're now in the second year as of this year in Mornington, Tasmania, so close to halfway. And I think um, it's gone really well um, thus far. And I think, um, and part of that is because, as I say, we were pretty pretty close to qualifying for those organic concepts previously. We've just tweaked um, some final um, elements of how we're running the vineyards and wineries to, to now fully comply with the certification process. Oh, perfect. Congratulations. It's uh, so amazing. And I've definitely been trying or trying to try a lot of more organic wines and I've been really enjoying them. So I'll be excited to see what they're like when they're released. Yeah, no, we're absolutely delighted. And I think it's such a good thing both for the consumer, but also, you know, for people like myself and the staff who are, you know, out in the vineyards on a daily basis. It's nice to know that there's less chemicals in that environment. I think it makes it a better place to be. Um, in the bigger picture. I definitely agree. Um, so from those two ranges, what are your favourite bottles? I probably spoiled for choice, but I think mm-hmm. the new Chardonnay from the Tasmanian Collection range, the 2019, I'm pretty excited about that. That's our first heavy Chardonnay uh, that we've released. Oh, congratulations. It's a really interesting wine and, and one that will just evolve beautifully for the future. And then in the Mornington sense, again, spot for choice, but I think the 2018 Capella Pinot Noir, which is a single vineyard wine from, from the vineyard that surrounds the wineries down here in Mornington, uh, would probably be um, a work spot for me. It's a very special Pinot for us just because it is close to home and, and we do put so much work into um, growing it to be pure and, and delicate but also have that depth and flavour and lengthy flavour. What are the notes of the Chardonnay because this is the one that we'll be doing the giveaway with so I thought we'd do some little notes um, for everyone that's listening. Well I think being a a Tasmanian Chardonnay it's got this lovely minerality and saline edge on the nose. It's a vineyard that is grown on the um, the Tamar River but it's not Mm -hmm. straight. You can actually see the ocean the distance from the side of the vineyard. Um, it also has this lovely, very pure lemon fruits on the nose and the palate. Um, and I think being cool climate, being down there in Tasmania, you just have this beautiful acidity to it. So it's lovely length of flavour and tension that comes from the mineral acid structure. Um, it does see um, close to a year in oak barrels, so you will see a bit of that influence with some char and toast in the background. Um, but that's not really meant to be dominant. It's really driven by that beautiful citrus fruit. Sounds amazing. Yeah, because I'm not, with my Chardonnay, I'm not a massive fan of the super oaky ones. I no. do prefer ones that have more of those citrus notes and the minerality. Yeah. So it definitely sounds like something that I would enjoy. This one should be your cup of tea then. That should be. Oh, perfect. <laughs> um, what food would you put with this? If you were doing a dinner party or having a barbecue, what would you suggest pairing with it? To me, it's a pretty versatile wine. I think it probably depends a little bit on the person too. I think I would be quite happy to enjoy it um, as an imperative by itself. You know, it's got that mm. quite salivating um, freshness to it, which would leave you ready to, to start a dinner. With that, um, with that minerality and that acid structure, I think it would pair really nicely with some of the richer seafoods, like say maybe some scallops or, uh, you know, I probably... Um, I'm quite a big fan of Chardonnay with even richer meats like a, a Cleveland steak or something like that. I think it would really capture the, 
discussion to see if that works out. So I think mm-hmm. a pretty versatile one. Um, I would be happy to experiment with a pretty wide range of food cups. So Hampig is also big on sustainability as well, which I love. Um, what steps are you taking to adopt a more sustainable approach? And what is the Sustainable Wine Growing Australia program as well? Because I saw that on your yeah, website briefly, yeah. but I haven't heard of it before. Well, I mean, sustainability for us, it, it really has to be a concept that tries to capture the entire business and not just what we do in, say, the vineyard of the winery. Um, there are certainly plenty of things that we do in those places, but along with that, we've also tried to, to make it other things that we're doing in a general sense, like um, when we're choosing what type of cardboard or labels or pamphlets or that maybe we're using at an event. We're really trying to pursue things and have that recyclable capacity, uh, lower carbon inputs, etc., etc. We're sport for choice in terms of what we can do in vineyards um, particularly. Um, from a sustainability point of view, we've been doing things like composting on site. So when you are making wine, the grapes come in and you take the juice off the grape or the wine off the grape and left with the solids, which we call mark. Out of the winery, we take all that mark and we compost it with, um, with wood chips and straws and manures to, to make a compost, which can then um, be either applied directly under the vines or, or on the properties or turned into a compost tea and, and sprayed like a, a mist amongst the leaves and foliage of the vines or trees. There are other things like um, we plant insectariums to try to encourage the native uh, local um, insect populations which can be beneficial when we're growing the grapes. They prey on pests that we don't want there. Um, so it's a diverse range of, of things at our disposal. In terms of sustainable wine growing Australia, that's... Um, been a relatively recent program in a national sense that's come out of South Australia. And what that's about is allowing people to drill into certain details of right across their business, similar to what we've, we've started already, and really flag areas in which you can improve on. And by making it a nationally accredited program, the idea is that you can also then benchmark yourself against other people in your region in the area so it's a competition but it's a friendly competition everyone's trying to do the same thing and improve and it really gives you that sense of areas that you can improve on over time so that might be how much water or power you're using on the site it might be where you're sourcing your power from it could be how much waste is generated the landfill versus recycling um, all those sorts of things and it just provides you with this really useful capacity to measure and gauge how you're performing mm, no definitely there's nothing wrong with a bit of friendly competition as well <laughs> which is great how many other wineries are involved in the program uh, across australia uh, it's it's rolled out nationally this year i haven't actually seen the exact numbers but i know that across the board we've They've had a lot of interest, so it would be measured in the hundreds, I'm sure. I certainly think it's going to be um, quite transformational in terms of taking the whole of the national wine industry forwards on a, a nationally accredited system. No, definitely. It sounds really fascinating. And yeah, I feel like competition, having that little bit of competition there, and it's competition for good as well. So, like, who can be the most sustainable? I mean, that's definitely not a bad sort of competition to have. No, so. Right. I think so, uh, you know, times are changing in terms of agriculture. I think in general really has embraced all of those things. Where now I think um, we're not too far from, you know, similar to a hybrid or electric cars on the road, whereas everyone's tractors used to burn diesel. I think we're not too far away from um, electric tractors being readily available. No, definitely. Uh, electric tractors would be great. My um, parents actually have a farm in England, and I'm oh, pretty yeah. sure my dad would love an electric tractor. <laughs> so. 
I'll have to see if away. he's over that. Yeah. <laughs> We've got one round of, um, of tractors about to be bought, which will be diesel, and I'm pretty sure they'll be the last diesel ones we buy, I think. So I saw something on your Instagram, which I found really fascinating, and it's the concept of the eggs. Yes. Um, can you explain that to me? How do they work? What's their purpose? I, th- I saw it on someone else's as well, and I was like, I must find out what that does. Eggs are an interesting one because, uh, well, obviously, when we make wine, we have all sorts of millions of different types of vessels, and the most common ones are uh, the oak barrels or stainless steel tanks. Eggs, um, I would say, you know, evolution of something that's been done for eons in various parts of the world where somewhere like Georgia, for example, they used to use terracotta vessels that were buried underground um, to make all their wine. And in more use, recent times, the, the concept of, of different or alternative vessels has come to, to people's attention a little bit more. We've been able to actually get our hands on different types of vessels. So uh, from a handpick point of view, what that meant was we got three different types of eggs. So we got a terracotta egg from Spain, we got a concrete egg from France, and we had a ceramic egg, um, which was made here in Australia in Byron Bay. The idea of the egg being that um, egg or ovoid shape is that when you have a ferment of wine, the, what starts as grape juice is turning to wine, and the sugars in the juice are converting to alcohol through the activity of the yeast, which generates heat. Inside the egg, it means you get these currents. And the idea is that the egg shape gives you this perfect circulation of liquid and, and suspends all the solids, of, which are bits of grape and also parts of the yeast and all those sorts of things, so that you get this um, added complexity through that mixing process and that gives you mouth weight and feel and texture. Um, okay that's so interesting wow i didn't know that they could do so much too from the outside you would have no idea what was going on inside and uh, we do see that too because what happens is when when the ferment is finished and the yeast have died because there's no more food and they settle uh, they they create what we call leaves and if you leave it to settle over time without moving the leaves in say a stainless steel tank or a barrel would settle on the very bottom of the container it's interesting in the eggs what we find is that that layer, really fine sort of dust or leaves layer that's on the on the bottom, actually extends quite a long way up the side. So you see that real extra circulation of all those solids. On top of that, the different materials have been quite interesting because you know you can imagine um, if you've got a piece of concrete, a terracotta tile, and a um, ceramic plate, and you, you know if you imagine in your mind that you then lick it and use mm. different dusts and flavours and textures. Um, they're quite a, a different mix of materials. The, the wine actually does respond quite differently to those materials. So if you take the same wine and put it in each of the three vessels, you'll get a very different texture and underlying sort of minerality to the wine, depending on which one you put it in. So which wines do you make and which eggs? Well, we do, um, we play around depending on the season and the different parcels and how we think we're going to respond. We are making a Tasmanian Riesling in the French concrete egg, which I think has worked really well. We make a Vermentino, uh, which we put in a mixture of all three. Um, we have a Nebbiolo Rosé, uh, which we put in a mixture of all three, depending on the year. Uh, and what was going on. Um, so it's probably one of those things where I think you respond a little bit to the season and how the fruit is looking and, and come up with a plan on the back of that. So the Nabolu Rosé, is that the trial batch one? Because I think I have one right in front of me. Um, it's also one of my favourite rosés as well. So that's 
So interesting that it's been made in the egg. That's yeah. great. Not all, not exclusively, but certainly portions. Because mm. as we're looking to get those little bits of complexity and, and nuances in the, the different wines in different ways. No, it's amazing. And it's so cool to see sort of like different ways being used and different ways being done, like aside from the norm. So mm. yeah, I'm glad I found out what they do now because I was very interested when I saw them. Yeah, they're quite, I mean, for in a winemaking sense, and that's where for the trial batch range particularly, which we did, was a range of wines we put together for Salador. The idea being, you know, it's it's a, a range that the winemakers can experiment and do some interesting things. And also the customers who come to Salador can try these different wines. You know, we've obviously got our, our key wines, various ranges, but, um, but I think uh, that, the idea was it's going to give the visitors to Salador something really interesting and different to have a look at. Oh my god, definitely. Um, so your so were these eggs? Will you have them at the cellar door in Sydney, or do you do you have a cellar door in Mornington Peninsula that people can visit we, as well? We are open by appointment in Mornington at the winery, uh, and that's where the eggs are because that's where we're making those wines and, and putting them together. Um, we do a range of wines that we we send to the cellar door in Sydney, and very soon the cellar door in Melbourne once that opens. Um, and the idea of that is we try to give people a sense of, of what's happening in the winery and. That rotates every couple of months. We put something different into the you know, tanks that are in Sydney and the barrels that will be in Melbourne. So, what grape varieties are you currently growing? We've kind of we've kind of covered that, I think. But um, what seems to be the most popular? Do you reckon? In terms of what we grow and make, Pinot and Chardonnay are definitely a key sort of the pillar or foundation of what we do. Um, but we do have lots of different little parcels spread far and wide. So. That could be um, Cabernet from Margaret River. It could be Old Vine Bush Grenache from a vineyard in Barossa. Um, it could be something new that, you know, growing in the vineyards, it's, it's going to come online in a few more years, but we've got quite a few little projects on the side that, are, that bubble along. So um, in response to what we're seeing is um, changes in climate. Um, as an example, we've got things like the Spanish bread variety called Nuclea, which has gone into our so for everyone who isn't in Sydney, I've been to the cellar door so many times. I love it. It's it's such a great great place to go. But can you tell us more a little bit more about the idea behind it? So the idea of the cellar door in Chippendale was that because we have wines that are spread across all these different regions, um, it was harder to open a cellar door in one of these places and have it make complete sense to to people coming in through the door. You need mm. walk into a potential site in. Yarra Valley or Mornington and there'd be all these different wines from everywhere else. So that um, got us to thinking that it might actually make more sense to go somewhere um, like the city where obviously there's also a really good selection or, or base in terms of being close to the customers and to try to create that urban cellar door. Mm, no, definitely. I love going. It's so much fun to try all the different yeah. wines and then being able to buy them there yeah. as well it's a great concept yeah and i suppose what we tried to do is, is merge a few different elements there so there's there's probably the classic cellar door experience where you can just purely taste wines and as if you were in a wine region and there's also the retail element where it's probably signature bottle shop and then there's probably the wine bar side of things which is more like um, being able to sit down enjoy some chicotry or cheese and, uh, and try some different wines with it. So you're also setting one up in Melbourne as well. Congratulations. There's a lot of congratulations in this because you guys are killing it. Will it be the same as the one in Sydney or will there be any differences? 
Uh, the concept's going to be pretty similar to what we've done in Sydney, in a sense, in terms of those combination of um, cell door, retail, and, and wine bar sort of spaces. We will do little bits and pieces differently. You know, it'll be a laneway near 80 Collins Street, so right in the heart of, of Melbourne CBD. And the idea there is, I suppose, we're also going to be making it a little bit more accessible in terms of light meals at, say, breakfast or brunch or lunch. And... Uh, we think in Melbourne, we also have a coffee machine. <laughs> I think in concept, there will be a lot very similar. Okay, perfect. But there'll be more of like that cafe, I guess, sort of element. There'll be some elements of that for sure, yeah. We've also been able to learn a few things from um, the site in Sydney. So there'll also be some areas which will be more like private function space, you know, where it's located really is in the heartland um, of a lot of businesses and elements sort of that that would be looking for spaces they could use to old events or, or meetings or whatever else during the course of the day. Yeah, and who doesn't want to have a meeting at um, a cellar door in the city? I mean, that sounds perfect. <laughs> exactly. What wines are you drinking right now? It doesn't have to be from Handpicked, but if you want it to be from Handpicked, that's fine too. Uh, in a general sense, we're coming off the back of the heights of summer. So uh, for me, that, that holiday period's always involves a fair bit of beach time and, and whatnot. Uh, that tends to swing towards some nice Riesling. So recent ones we've enjoyed, we had some of the Castle Rock Rieslings from Prongarups in West Australia. We just launched our Tasmanian Riesling in the trial batch range. But, but really in Australia, we're spoiled for choice. So we've probably tried a, a whole bunch of different ones. A recent one was the Adelina from the Clare Valley. Uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of good, good wines to choose from that go really well with summer and, and summer meals. Just going to go slightly off topic, but can you describe for me or explain to me what the trial batch is for some pe- for people that haven't seen it or haven't tried any of yeah, the trial sure. batch range? Um, so the trial batch we started, we were aware that we had really loyal and regular customers coming through Salvador and they obviously were coming back because they were loving the wines that we had. The, the concept of trial batch initially started because we thought we'd give people like those regular customers who are coming in a couple of nights a week something really small parcel, a little bit experimental um, and a little bit interesting in terms of some newer wines that might sit slightly differently to the core of what we were doing or maybe we're also a little bit of an experiment on the winemaker's part. So that's where the concept of trial batch was born. The cases have been really successful. So the trial batch Nebbiolo Rosé actually was super successful and that made us rethink how we were making our rosé in the Yarra Valley. Um, other wines are just pure experiment and fun. So we did a skin contact reason a couple of years ago, which was, you know, no sulfur, 100% fermented on skins and left there for three months. We didn't really even touch it. Um, and then it was basically pressed. Just a real experiment on the winemaker's part. And it came up in a really interesting wine and um, sold out um, super quickly. What is your favourite food and wine pairing at the moment? I think off the back of this summer, it was um, a beautiful balmy summer evening where I had one of our Mornington Collection Chardonnays. We had family around, sitting out on the lawn around the barbecue, and I actually had um, jointed and grilled um, just on some charcoal, uh, a rabbit. And, oh, wow. 
just with the pepper and salt and then squeeze the lemon once it was cooked. Um, I thought that for me was, was pretty heavenly. So coming round to the last question, uh, this one's probably quite a hard one because it's like choosing between children. Um, mm. But from the hand-picked wine collection, which would you take to a dinner party, a barbecue and save for a rainy day? Always a tricky question from a mm point of view, I think um, because of what you said earlier about Chardonnay, where people can have such diverse tastes and often say they don't like Chardonnay, I would take one that was a bit different to try to convince people that it can be um, so enjoyable. So I would take the 19 collection Tasmanian Chardonnay to dinner. Um, to a barbecue, I think, you know, engaging a nice Sunday afternoon in the sun, not on something too rich and heavy, um, and something that can be, you know, put into a few glasses with friends. Um, I would choose the trial batch near the bowl of the lighter style of bread, lighter alcohol, quite coffeeable. Uh, and then a wine to cellar and save for any day. I would probably go to one of our flagships, which would be Perfect. No, that sound or sound sound great. I feel like this question's so good for people who, when they're going to dinner parties or barbecues and they don't know what to take, it's great for them to hear what other people's and the professionals are taking, and then sort of like go off that a little bit. Definitely. Mm, sure. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I can't wait to taste all of the wines. I'm definitely going to try the Chardonnay. And, but I hope you have a lovely rest of your week. And thank you again. It's been great. Thanks, Harris. That was wonderful to talk. And uh, I hope you enjoy the wines when you get to try them. I will do. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. I'll see you next week for another closer look into the wine industry. Now go and grab that glass of wine. You deserve it.